The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Interra, Geoscience and Engineering Solutions. By Xylem, Let's Solve Water. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. And by Ziptility, helping utilities capture more, better, and accurate data from the field. This is session 166. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you for joining me. Austin Thompson of the University of North Carolina's Environmental Finance Center joins us today to discuss the challenges and innovations occurring in small water systems. Uh, before we get to Austin, however, a little housekeeping. As you are aware, the COVID-19 outbreak is causing significant disruption in our lives. Uh, stay safe and healthy. I'm not a health expert and don't pretend to be, so if you need resources, Find them, go online, rely on uh, on your loved ones. Uh, if you need resources, however, dealing with business or utility issues, uh, I would encourage you to check out Denton's COVID-19 hub at dentons.com. Uh, Denton's has offices in virtually every country that's been impacted by it. We've got special country-specific sites uh, identifying issues. We're also holding a webinar today, Tuesday, March 17th at 3 o'clock Eastern, titled COVID-19 and the Utility Response maintaining critical infrastructure and services. And that webinar will be recorded and made available on the Denton's website if you're listening after the webinar broadcasts. Next, another hearty thank you to our sponsors. Again, they are Interra, Xylem, the American Water Works Association, Black and & Veatch, and Ziptility. And I'd like for you to do me a favor. If you work for any of the sponsors, thank your boss, or if you work with a sponsors or one of the sponsors, thank your contact at that sponsor firm and let them know that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. Also, if you're interviewing for a job with one of the sponsors, again, what a great way to, to let the interviewee or interviewer know that you are paying attention to, interview, to issues in the utility industry. So thank them and let them know that you appreciate that, that sponsor sponsoring the podcast. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of the water industry, uh, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast directory you access the podcast on. That'd be greatly appreciated and will help others find out about the podcast. And finally, thank you for those ratings and reviews. We picked up another five-star rating this week on Stitcher. Uh, the Stitcher uh, interview is from Dave in Belfast, and he says, an excellent resource consistently interesting subject matter and interviewees. Well, thank you, David Belfast. Greatly appreciate uh, the, the excellent rating and review on Stitcher. Well, let's get that water flowing. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here's our interview with Austin Thompson. Well, Austin, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much. I appreciate you uh, again. Appreciate you being here. Uh, for those uh, that may not be familiar with your work, could you please uh, tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Absolutely. Um, I would imagine most people probably 
are not super familiar with my work. I actually have not been um, within the world of water for that long. Uh, I started at the Environmental Finance Center at UNC Chapel Hill um, in May of 2018. So I've been there about a year and a half at this point. And I started there after going to uh, the Duke Nicholas School for the Environment. So, you know, kind of traded over from what I now consider to be the dark side over to UNC. <laughs> um, but I really got interested in the environment um, and water specifically when I was an environmental educator. So I worked as an environmental educator between undergrad and grad school. And then once I started at, at grad school, I actually, um, this, is, this is a really random funny story, but uh, was on a bike ride. So I'm a big cyclist. I was on a bike ride. And um, one of the guys there was basically telling me all about the Environmental Finance Center once he heard I was interested in environmental finance, more so economics, but finance as well, um, and water. Ended up taking a course uh, with uh, Jeff Hughes at uh, the UNC EFC at the time, um, and then eventually that led to me applying for a job, and, and here I am. So I think I was really interested in um, you know, how we pay for environmental services, um, and, and specifically the different mechanisms and methodologies for, for funding things like water, wastewater, stormwater. Um, and so the Environmental Finance Center was really just a great fit. Oh, terrific. So uh, Jeff, Hughes, Jeff Hughes, or should I say Commissioner Hughes, uh, has, he has been a uh, guest on the podcast in the past. And uh, he was, you know, in, in late 2019 was confirmed and joined the North Carolina Utilities Commission, right? That's correct. Yeah. So his last day in the office, I think, was actually Halloween or maybe a, maybe a week after Halloween. So he hasn't been gone for too long, but uh, <laughs> his, his presence is definitely missed. Uh, he's He's an incredible person. I'm sure he's going to go on to do great things for the Utility Commission. Yeah, I, I, it, it's good to have someone with his knowledge base, I think, sitting on the commission. Uh, so in, in terms of your role at the uh, UFC, what, what, what kind of work are you doing? So I, I'm, I'm a project director at the Environmental Finance Center, which, you know, I always say doesn't really mean anything to the outside world. Um, my role is, is, is pretty diverse, which is part of what I really like about my job. Every day is a little bit different, but uh, a lot of what I do is um, quantitative analysis for big research projects that we may have um, or training. So actually going out to different states and conducting trainings on rates and finance or doing technical assistance. So one-on-one -on -one work with actual water utilities. Um, but I tend to be much more on kind of the rates and finance side. But at the same time, I'm, um, a lot of what I do really just depends on the projects that we have going on. Um, so right now, you know, two of the biggest projects that I'm working on right now are one with the Appalachian Regional Commission, where we're doing an evaluation of water and wastewater infrastructure projects that they funded um, between fiscal years 2009 and 2016. And then another big project that we have right now is our Smart Management for Small Water Systems project with EPA. Um, and that's the project that really has me traveling around the country uh, doing those trainings, those, those all-day workshops for water operators or folks who um, might work for, for local government um, and trying to, you know, extend some of the knowledge that we have related to setting rates um, and how you can set rates for, for different customer classes and, and make sure that there, um, there's some equity, you know, between what you're charging and, and the actual members of your community. Sure thing. So, uh, you know, it's quite quite an interesting juxtaposition there. You're doing big projects for small systems. Uh, yeah. What are some of the... Um, let's kind of talk about those small systems and, and 
the challenges that small systems face. So can you kind of define the problem that small, the problems that small systems face? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, you can think generally across the country um, and then you can think more regionally, which is what we've been doing with that, that Appalachian Regional Commission project. Um, across the country, you know, you hear about uh, small systems all the time. You hear about the infrastructure need, um, that, and that's not limited to small systems. Uh, we know that, that water systems across the country have huge needs in terms of infrastructure. Um, but then you think about, okay, how are we going to actually generate the revenue to meet that infrastructure need. And that's really the crux of what I would say we work on at the Environmental Finance Center when it comes to small systems is, is that revenue generation to meet those infrastructure needs, to meet those capital needs. Um, and when you are, you know, when, when you work at a small system, when you're running a small system, uh, your, your revenue base is just smaller. You just don't have as many customers. Um, so when you're thinking about these multi-million dollar infrastructure projects, you just don't have the same customer base to, to, to spread those costs across. Um, so it can get to be a real challenge. Um, and then, you know, you've got all of these other different issues that might exist in, in places like, like Appalachia. You've got water quality issues. Um, if they used to be mining towns, oftentimes we're seeing that um, there's some pretty uh, significant contamination of source water. Um, so that can be really challenging for these communities. Um, you know, they may not even have a, a reliable source of water uh, not to mention the fact that, again, in Appalachia, you've got all of these, these topography challenges. So huge mountains um, combined with people that are really spread out. Uh, it, can, it can just be really challenging to provide clean water to people. Um, and, and it's one of those, those challenges where, you know, if you do have a small system, um, you're probably met with pretty high costs. But at the same time, um, there are a lot of folks across the country that still don't have access to to water in their homes, um, nor do they have, you know, traditional plumbing and, and, and wastewater services. So, um, not to be super bleak, I, I recognize <laughs> that the tone of my voice has gone, has gone down pretty significantly, but um, I think it's safe to say that there are a lot of challenges with small systems. Yes, so Austin. Um, and so we've been doing a lot of research. Yeah, terrific. And that's what I was going to ask you about. So, so what has your research shown and what, what are some of the ways that, that small systems can, uh, you know, guard against these risks or mitigate the risks that you've identified? So I'll, I'll start by saying one, I'm not an engineer and two, I have not unfortunately found kind of like that, you know, catch all solution. There's no silver bullet out there. (laughs) Yeah. At least I haven't found it. Yeah. Maybe someone else has found it, but unfortunately, it hasn't been me. Um, but you know, we, when we're thinking about uh, ways to address these challenges, one of the ways to address the challenges um, is, is to think outside of the box, right? So, pretty much across the country, most people are used to turning on their tap, and they just have you know water whenever they whenever they want it. Um, and in a lot of cases, um, you know, you can make that work. But in a lot of cases, that can be a lot more challenging, um, and you might need to think outside of the box a little bit. So. We've been kind of thinking about things through what we're considering to be kind of like a quote-unquote innovations lens. Um, So innovations in things like the design of the system, the actual technology of the system, um, the way that you're paying for some of these infrastructure uh, needs that you have, as well as um, kind of what we're considering to be quote-unquote partnerships. So um, things like, you know, just working with neighboring communities and, and sharing resources as well as, um, you know, things like regionalization and consolidation. So that's how we've been framing it. 
Terrific. So what, what, um, what solutions within that framework have, have, has your research identified or, or do you, and, and can you talk a little about the research too? I think maybe that's where we ought to start. Let's, let's talk about the research you've done, um, on these small systems. Absolutely. So, um, the research that we've done has been more so like a case study approach. Um, so we're trying to find examples on the ground of innovations um, and do research on essentially things that we've seen implemented that have had, you know, varying levels of success um, with the understanding that, you know, uh, there, there are barriers to, to being innovative, specifically with small systems. Um, when you're dealing with things like water, there's obviously risk associated with it. There's public health risk. Um, there's compliance cost risk. Um, there's a lot of risk involved with thinking outside of the box and doing something a little bit different. So we've been trying to find examples of innovative projects. And, and the way we've been doing that, we've really been looking specifically at Appalachia, um, just because, like I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of the challenges with small systems are, you know, they exist in Appalachia and, and potentially are worse. So what we've been doing is really just trying to reach out to people in all of these states. So people who um, work for funding agencies in states within Appalachia, people who work for um, you know, the development organizations, people who work for, you know, the area development districts, trying to figure out what it is that they've seen and try to um, essentially go from there. So we, it, it's hard to know what you don't know is what I always say. Um, so we've been trying to reach out to people on the ground in these areas to figure out things that they've seen and then do our own research and reach out to those folks to fill in the gaps. Um, so that's, that's been, you know, um, we found a few interesting projects and we're still seeing some interesting projects implemented. Actually, um, one of the, the most recent case studies that, um, that we've kind of added to the mix is, is from West Virginia and it was actually based on an article that came out a little over a month ago. Um, so we are still seeing implementation of things that we consider innovative, um, but it's really just hoping to add to this body of knowledge. So that if people, you know, are interested in thinking outside of the box, they recognize that potentially um, if traditional provision of water just isn't going to work for their community, they have something else to lean on, and they they have examples um, of people that they can reach out to, to to fill in those gaps for themselves as well. Sure. Now, what 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 types of innovations have are are you? are you seeing out there? I mean, when you're, when you're doing that and granted, you've only been at the UFC a year and a half. Uh, so you, you, but I, I am kind of curious, you know, what, what have you learned so far that, that works from an innovation standpoint in these small systems? Right. So what we've seen, I would say potentially from, from my perspective, um, what we've seen are examples of innovations that can reduce costs so an example of that was a case study from Frostburg, Maryland, um, where they're actually um, doing kind of like uh, a small scale hydropower. Um, so they're trying to recover some energy because they are essentially responsible for pumping water over a mountain. Um, so in that process, they're trying to capture the energy of the water moving down the other side of the mountain um, to try to capture some of that energy and recover some of the energy costs associated with with pumping water, you know, when it, uphill up over a mountain, um, and so that's just one example of an innovation that we're that we're seeing. So when we're kind of thinking, you know, more broadly, um, 
for, for systems that may not even have, you know, the capital costs associated with implementing something that's that complex. I would say the case study that I have resonated most with um, is the water kiosk model. Um, and, and we've seen an example of that in Kentucky. Are you familiar with kiosks at all? Well, I've, I've heard of them. I can't say that I've ever seen one, um, but I, I, I would love to know, I would love to have you explain that uh, exactly what a kiosk is and, and let our, let our audience know. Absolutely. So uh, this is, this is the example I, I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, as I've done more research on this particular model, it seems like there's a lot of information out there, but whenever we presented this to people, they've always kind of thought, well, you know, that's interesting. I never thought about that. Um, the example that, that we really leaned into and done a lot of research on is from Beverly, Kentucky, um, which is very rural. Um, for reference, it's about two hours north of Knoxville. Um, so it's in, you know, kind of southeastern Kentucky. Um, but basically, it's, it's an interesting model, and it, it really arose um, based on, on partnerships that already existed within the community. Uh, so there's a, there's a faith-based mission there called Red, Redbird Mission. Um, and they, the church there had, had previously built a kiosk that was on a, a private well. Um, but there were essentially some challenges associated with the church, you know, being responsible for the monitoring and for the testing. Um, and, and actually it was in such high demand that it overdrained the well. Um, so the community essentially kind of expressed this need for clean water. Um, and, and I think it, it got a fair amount of media attention to the extent where there was actually a team from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, like I said, about two hours south, um, that decided to launch this interdisciplinary team and project to bring clean water to this community. Um, and just for reference, this is a very small community. I mean, if you, if you look it up, it's an unincorporated area according to, you know, the internet, quote unquote, um, of about 158 residents. So if you were to look it up on Google Maps, it just looks like trees. Um, it's not really close to anything. The people that live there um, were, most of them didn't have, you know, water or wastewater service at their house. Um, a lot of them were, you know, doing things like street piping into, into streams, which was obviously causing contamination problems. And they would stop it at uh, um, springs on the side of the road or just find um, you know, pipes that are essentially, um, you know, producing water that, that might exist throughout the community, and that's what they were using for their, for their water service. So um, these were essentially households that were pretty far set back from municipal water lines and, and just didn't have um, the, the resources to, to actually connect to county water lines um, and, and were really kind of faced with a public health crisis. Um, so basically, this is an example of essentially a community that did not have the traditional provision of water and wastewater services. Um, and, and they really were faced with um, this, this dire public health need and they needed to figure something else out. So this was a huge project, like I was saying, um, with an interdisciplinary team from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. Um, and it involved everything from actual water sampling and water testing to the more qualitative side. So actual stakeholder engagement, trying to figure out what people wanted um, and what people would actually use. Because what you don't wanna do is add something to a community, go through all of the steps, go through you know, all of this, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in research and implementation, and then create something that people really don't want and don't use. So basically what they did um, was 
things like I said, like water testing and sampling. They did an assessment of the critical infrastructure in the community. So where it was essentially kind of like asset management, trying to figure out where the actual infrastructure was and the condition of the infrastructure. They did stakeholder analyses and interviews, trying to figure out where people currently get their water from, um, what people were concerned about when it came to actually their drinking water. Um, so are they concerned about contamination? Do they trust the local water sources, things, things of that nature? Um, and then they also did focus groups um, to figure out, you know, what did, what did the folks in the community see as the challenges um, to actually getting water, um, clean, clean water provided to them? Um, and what did they see as potential solutions? And, and the whole process, like I said, it was, it was, a, it was a very long process. Um, and eight, they actually did water sampling at 18 sites. Um, and that was you know, ranging from north of Beverly to south of Beverly. And of those 18 sites, only one of them didn't test positive for, for fecal coliform or for E. coli. So there were serious water contamination issues and that really increased the, I think, the importance of, of figuring out a solution uh, for the community. Yeah. So and, after, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, so I was just going to just gonna ask, so the, 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 the kiosk example, which is what, which is what kicked this off. So the church had, it's essentially a water station, right? Where people can go and, and bring a jug and fill it up and then take it back right. to their residence. Right. Okay. So I just wanted to, to get that, that point out. And, and I apologize. I, you may have said that, but I missed it. Um, so I'll let you, I'll, I'll let you continue on with, with kind of the route you were going. I just wanted to, to get that little piece in there. So I do appreciate you bringing that up. But yes, it was essentially just a site where um, people would bring jugs. They draw, they drive up to uh, to the church that had uh, the actual kiosks. They would, um, you know, dispense the water. They would pay whatever the cost was that the church had set for the water, um, and then they would haul that water back to their home. So that was the previous model that they had been had been using before, you know, before the well dried up, um, and so. That kind of actually leads into a little bit more of, you know, what this community decided to do. Um, so, you know, you brought up the church and run the, the actual kiosk previously. So there was an established kind of um, relationship between uh, the community and that mission, as well as an understanding within the community that this is a model that they could potentially pursue. Um, so once they started getting into those stakeholder analyses, started doing some of those focus groups and interviews, um, Basically, what they they realized is that this community had experience with the water kiosk model, so it wasn't something that they should necessarily give up on or scratch as an idea. Um, but maybe there was a way to provide a little bit more reliable service um, that didn't necessarily put the impetus on the mission to actually do the testing and monitoring. So they moved forward with a new kiosk design, um, and this new kiosk design actually tapped into. Um, an existing county line um, that wasn't necessarily in the county associated with Beverly, Kentucky, but is, you know, a bordering county. It's very close by. It's Leslie County. Uh, and they basically went through the process of designing a kiosk that allowed folks to drive up. Um, it was covered, and it also had a gathering area. So they wanted this to be a community space. Um, so they created a little spot off to the side where they could have a farmer market where people could come and gather, where it could be a space that was accepted within the community and a space that people didn't see as, you know, um, associated with folks who, who didn't have water service in their homes. 
Terrific. So, so they were able to move forward with that and it, it worked out pretty well. Oh, good. Well, good. So, I mean, what, what you've described, I, I'm, I'm curious about small systems because one of the things I always think about with, with smaller systems is, you know, you, you see all these uh, demographic statistics that urban areas are going to become more dense and rural areas are going to become less dense. And, and so that's, that seems to me like another challenge that small systems face is declining uh, customer base. And so have you looked at that or are there any innovative solutions out there to, to help systems that are experiencing that, experiencing that eroding customer base uh, you know, to, to help them, you know, with, with the needs of infrastructure updates with, uh, financial tools, things of that nature. So, yes. So we do see examples of, um, you know, of, of, of small communities getting smaller and large communities getting larger. I think that's happening across the country. Um, and there are, there are solutions in that case. Um, and what we're, what we largely recommend for rural communities is to think about working together. Uh, so thinking about things like partnerships. So that can range from, you know, the, your neighbor has, um, a piece of heavy machinery that you might need, um, and just borrowing that or sharing that resource. You know, you have something that they need and they have something that you need. And at times you guys share those resources. And it might not be something that's legally binding, but it's just something that these two communities are already doing and is already established and is a way to kind of share costs and not, you know, not have redundancy in areas where you don't need redundancy. And those partnerships can range from, from examples like that all the way up to, you know, models of regionalization and consolidation where you are seeing these smaller systems where they do have declining population and potentially they don't need all of the infrastructure, all the capacity all of the treatment plants that they have within such a small area and, and consolidating those resources um, and becoming one central utility where they can spread those costs over a larger customer base. So we do see examples of that. Yeah. Yeah. What, and, and so you've, you've mentioned a lot of, uh, and, and had some great examples in your studies about, you know, like for, you brought up the water kiosks uh, and the, 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 it sounded like it was in pipe hydro, um, going down the mountain. Uh, so those are something like engineering solutions, but you, you also mentioned Kentucky. And I think a lot of us have in, in the water industry have, have, uh, seen what the Kentucky PSC did to Martin County, uh, water district. And one of the things that the Kentucky PSC is, they, they issued a subsequent report, I think that, that said, look, a lot of these small systems, they, they've demonstrated, they don't have the, the managerial, capability they're like the boards make decisions based on more on um not wanting to be seen as a villain in in the public for raising rates but so they're they're not really taking financial responsibility and they're just not trained what role and so I, that's what i want to get into what role does training have in providing innovation to small systems and make just making sure that the people that are in charge of them and making the decisions are actually competent i think training has a huge role say that somewhat biased as someone who actually does training. Um, but I, I do think training has a huge role. And, and I mean, uh, again, I always go back to my, you don't know what you don't know. And I think um, the, the biggest challenge with training, at least what we see with the trainings that we conduct is those capacity challenges. So you are asking people to get out of the office 
um, for a day and come to these trainings. And so sometimes they are a little hesitant to do that. Um, but I do think training specifically when it comes to things like rates and finance, um, when it comes to understanding the infrastructure that, that you may have inherited and you may not know a ton about, um, understanding the costs associated with that infrastructure, understanding um, the way that you set your rates and how you can uh, implement things like, like debt service, um, how you can uh, you know, tap into existing funding sources. So we know that there are a lot of groups that exist in all, all states that are um, more than willing, whether it's a local development district to help piece together a funding package or these actual funders that exist out there that can help make things work. Um, so I do think trainings are hugely, hugely important um, specifically when it comes to rates and finance, things that are super important for, for you know, the long-term sustainability of the system, but on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, rates don't change every day. You're not thinking about changing your rates every day. In a lot of places, they, they don't really change at all. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, but it, it, is, it is hugely important, and it is absolutely tied to the long-term sustainability of a system. So I do agree, training is is very, very important. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned topography, geography considerations uh, in, in small systems. Can you talk a little more about why that's even a factor? Absolutely. Uh, so just as, as one example, um, and I was actually in Kingsport, Tennessee last Friday uh, meeting with a group for the, the project related to the Appalachian Regional Commission, um, and, and they were talking about um, extending water lines to some of the underserved portions of the county. Um, and they were talking about how oftentimes when they're extending these lines, they know there's rock down there, um, but, but they don't know how much. And that can significantly change uh, the capital costs associated with uh, water line extensions, with, with providing water to underserved areas. And, and you know, that, that's an unknown. Um, you can apply for a funding package, you can go out for bid, but until you actually get in there and start doing the actual construction process, um, you don't know the costs that are going to be associated with it. And if you're only extending it to a couple of homes, that cost per connection can be really, really high and can make it really challenging uh, for the system to maintain. So that's just one example. In addition, I mean, topography, if you're pumping over a mountain, <laughs> the, the energy costs associated with that are going to be really high. Um, specifically, again, if you're pumping to just a few homes, um, you have to think about, you know, who you're serving and, and the cost of service for those folks. And, um, in a lot of, a lot of areas of Appalachia, the cost of service, uh, you know, to add a couple people to the actual system can be really high, uh, just because of things like geography and topography. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, to, to take it a step further, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about Appalachia. Uh, are there, are there challenges that are unique to other small systems in other areas of the country or is, or is that kind of topography thing, the biggest one you've seen, you know, what, what are some of the other geographic differences that, that might uh, apply to smaller systems? Well, I mean, from the, you know, for Appalachia, it's pretty water rich area. Um, there are obviously other areas in the United States that are not as water rich, um, which can be an, a completely different challenge for, for small systems. They can still be spread out. Um, but potentially they don't have, you know, the wealth and abundance of, of, um, of water like they do in Appalachia. So that's a completely different issue um, and, and, and something that we do see across the country. And it, and it is a bit more challenging because, you know, you're trying to 
figure out how to provide water to folks when, when there isn't any water. Um, and that is a different challenge. And we do see um, some, some interesting technologies coming out. I'm not necessarily sure uh, you know, how well they, they actually work, but there, there are some technologies coming out now called hydro panels um, that can essentially pull water vapor from the air and, and provide pure, pure liquid water. Um, and they say that they can work in low, low humidity environments and really dry environments. So, you know, this obviously isn't a solution. You wouldn't be able to turn on a tap and have that amount of water produced, but um, there are definitely challenges that exist all across the country and they look a little bit different, but some of the really core key challenges associated with small systems, I think, um, can really be extended across the country. Yeah. Uh, does, does decentralized, uh, supply have any role in this rather than, than kind of a central treatment plant and distribution network? I mean, we've, we've talked about the kiosk, which, uh, it sounds to me like it's, it's, it's a decentralized supply, but what, what other, um, or, or I should just stop and say, does decentralized supply play a role? I, I think in a lot of places it, it potentially could. Yes. Um, because of all the reasons that I've already mentioned, all the, you know, the, the folks that, that may not already have access to, uh, to centralized water, uh, but may have a dire need for some sort of clean water. So I do think decentralized is um, a viable solution in some areas. And we're considering the kiosk example to be kind of like a transitional opportunity. So it is, you know, based on water that comes from a centralized facility, but it is a point where it's not delivered to the homes. So people are still responsible for going there and, and actually getting the water and hauling it back. So there are challenges associated with, you know, kind of models like that, decentralized models, because you are still, you know, asking people to come out of their homes to, to drive, to haul water. So there is, you know, that time and capacity component to it. Um, but in a lot of places, you know, that, that may be the only viable option. So I do think it has a role. I don't necessarily know that it's going to be the blanket solution in a lot of places, but, um, there, there are certain places where it's just going to be really challenging to, to follow the status quo. So I do think a decentralized option is, is a viable option. All right. All right. So, uh, Austin, I, I have really appreciated the time you spent with us today. You have, uh, you know, the specificity you've gone into, especially in the Appalachian regions and talking about the water kiosk model that I thought I found that very interesting. Uh, if you had a leave behind message, what would it be? I would say my leave behind message is, um, you know, don't be afraid to, to see what's out there. Um, I think a lot of times, going with the status quo, sticking with what you know is, is definitely the easiest and it feels like the safest option. Um, but I think there are a lot of really interesting solutions out there and there are a lot of groups that are working really hard to address these challenges. So I think my takeaway message would just be to see what's out there, do your research, um, and don't be afraid to ask questions. Yeah. We got to keep pushing boundaries, right? Um, absolutely. Terrific. Well, uh, Austin, for those who want to find out more about you and your work, where can they go to get that information? So you can always visit our website at the Environmental Finance Center. It is basically a series of three letters with periods in between it. It's efc.sog.unc.edu. Um, or people could just reach out to me via email. My last name is pretty standard. It's thompson at sog.unc.edu. And I'm always happy to, to talk to folks, to extend some of this knowledge to them, whether it's related to innovations or related to any of the other work that the EFC does. 
Awesome. Well, Austin, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Great. Thank you, Dave. All right. Bye now. What a terrific interview that Austin gave. I, I really appreciated her time and, and some of those uh, interesting uh, innovations that are coming out of small systems, how they're kind of finding unique ways uh, to deal with the unique challenges of topography and population densities, things like that, and the water kiosks. I thought it was a, a, just a really interesting uh, interview, and I really appreciate her time. Well, you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values and tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com and you can sign up for the newsletter at the Bluefield Research website where that's hosting it. So just go to thewatervalues.com and it'll redirect you to the Bluefield site where you can kind of sign up for the newsletter. Uh, Thank you again for tuning in. And again, a huge, massive thank you to our sponsors. Again, the sponsors are Intera, Xylem, the American Water Works Association, Black & Veatch, and Ziptility. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.